You see, there are life lessons to be gleaned from the Holy Land, and I want uh, you to uh, go with me tonight to this wonderful place to see what life lesson we can derive from it. The Mount of Beatitudes is called that because it's an elevated area on which the Lord delivered one of the magnificent sermons ever uh, called the Beatitudes. There are eight of them. They were part of a larger sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was delivered from this place. There's good reason to believe. This place called the Mount uh, of Beatitudes. It is the only elevated area in the area that could have accommodated because it had a level plane uh, attached to it. It's the only elevated area that could have accommodated the crowds who came to listen to the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. It's located along the shores of the beautiful Sea of Galilee, the northwestern part of it, near a place called, perhaps you've heard of it, Capernaum. Lord willing, we'll go to Capernaum someday. The Mount of Beatitudes is beautiful, and on it has been constructed by the Catholic Church a very beautiful chapel. The chapel of the Beatitudes, it's octagonal. It has eight sides, one for each of the Beatitudes. It was constructed in 1939. Interesting side note, it was funded by Benito Mussolini, so that's really good. I suppose he wanted to appease his conscience, and so he donated money for the construction of the chapel on the Mount of Beatitudes. The architect was the famous Antonio Barluzzi, a famous Italian architect. The Sermon on the Mount, which even Mahatma Gandhi called the greatest message ever given, uh, is recorded for us by two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke. As another sidelight, there seems to be a slight discrepancy in their respective accounts, and the critics of the Bible are very quick to point these out. Matthew, for instance, tells us uh, that the Sermon on the Mount took place on an elevated area, a hill, uh, but Luke says, no, it was on a level place, and so critics of the Bible say, which is it, Mount, level place, level place, Mount? Do you see how easy it is to resolve that apparent discrepancy? you've ever been to the hills of Galilee, you find out that many of them, although they be hills, also have level areas which are part of them. And so this is an easy thing to resolve. Matthew recorded the Lord's Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes, are only the beginning of the longer Sermon on the Mount. When we go to this place, uh, we pause and simply read the Beatitudes. I'd like to do so tonight. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 3 to 11. Let me read these to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what Beatitude means, blessing. Uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So those are the blessings. Those are the beatitudes. Do you know that the Lord never said anything out of context? This is the Lord himself. So whatever he said, whatever is recorded for us in the word of God, the Bible, has a context. Our task and privilege is to search it out and to make sure we're exerting diligent effort to make sure we know the context of that which we are reading. So we just read the Beatitudes, but it's important to know the context. Otherwise, you may come to some false conclusions about them. I think I could tell you what the context is rather briefly. You have to back up to Matthew chapter 4. And there, in verse 17, the Lord said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so based upon Matthew chapter 4, I think the context is the Lord's public announcement of his coming kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, here's what probably happened. The Jewish people, who were the first recipients of what the Lord said, probably asked themselves, wow, if the kingdom of Messiah is in fact at hand, what must I do uh, to qualify for it? What do I have to do in order to be eligible for the kingdom of heaven? Do I have to answer that phone or not? No, I don't have enough self-control to just let it go. I'm so sorry. It's my only imperfection. <laughs> Blessed are those who turn their cell phones off. <laughs> that won't happen again. Till next time. So folks would ask, uh, the Jewish folks in particular, what measure, what standard of righteousness do I have to attain in order to be eligible for the kingdom of heaven, you say? So I think this is the context in which the Lord declared the Beatitudes. Can you pull off those eight Beatitudes? Please let me answer it for you. No, you can't. You see, when the Lord declared the Beatitudes, the listener, primarily Jewish, would have said, Oh, no. If this is the standard of righteousness to which we must attain in order to qualify for the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand, then we can't do it. We're simply not going to make it. Now, they were coming to a conclusion which their religious leaders, the Pharisees, objected to because the Pharisees said, oh, no, 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 no. Everyone could qualify for the kingdom of heaven. You could meet the standards of God. You could attain to the level of righteousness he requires by simply complying with certain overt behaviors which God finds to be the right thing to do. All you have to do is set your mind on being a good person, practice the traditions of your religious leaders, and you can surely qualify for the kingdom of heaven. 
But the Lord, in one fell swoop on the Sermon of the Mount, obliterated centuries of Jewish religious tradition by saying, this is how you qualify for the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to surpass that of your own religious leaders. Your righteousness has to be greater than the supposed righteousness, the, uh, the outward righteousness uh, of the Pharisees. And so he obliterated conformity to religious tradition and even the laws of Moses as a means of getting in entrance into heaven. And he's going to prove his point in the rest of what comes after uh, uh, the Beatitudes. He's going to use a formula, a, a patterned means of illustrating his point. And he's going to make recourse to it six times. And here's the formula, and you're familiar with it. He's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say. Six times he says that. Here's what's going on. You have been taught by your religious leaders, but I say, your rabbis have told you a particular thing, but I, Rabbi Jesus, tell you this. So for instance, he begins to use this formula in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. You have heard, but now verse 22, but I say, see the formula? You have been taught, don't murder. But I say, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever even says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You know what he's doing? He's saying your religious leaders told you, if you simply avoid the commission of the act, the overt act of murder, you have attained to the level of righteousness which will qualify you for heaven. Just don't kill anyone. I say to you, however, it is not the act of murder that you have to attain to. There is an attitude which underlies the act of murder. And if you are guilty even of that attitude, forget about the overt behavior. If you are guilty which the, uh, of the attitude which always precedes the act of murder, even that falls short of the glory of God and will keep you out of heaven. So if you're angry at your brother, if you call your brother a good for nothing, if you say he is a fool, well, you've just murdered his personhood. You have just killed off his worth and value in the eyes of God. And just that failure is enough to keep you from gaining entrance into heaven. And my heavens, he is just cutting the religious leaders to the quick. Well, that's the first thing he says, but then he says something else. Look, verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. 
And so the religious leaders would have said, if you simply avoid the commission of that misdeed, then you have attained to the level of righteous living which God requires of you in order to gain entrance into heaven. You have heard that. But I say to you, verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. The Lord is saying your religious leaders are only speaking to you of compliance with certain overt behaviors. Conform to certain overt behaviors. As long as your externals are acceptable, you are acceptable. But the Lord Jesus is saying, but I say to you, it's the internals by which you'll be judged. So even if you manage to avoid having an affair... Just looking upon a woman as a potential object of your lusts is enough unrighteousness since it is contrary uh, with the moral, holy, perfect character of God. Just that is enough to keep you out of heaven. Do you see what he's doing? You know what you have on the hillside of the Mount of Beatitudes? A whole flock of depressed people right now. They ain't going to make it. Nobody is going to make it. He goes on to the third illustration, verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, that is to say, divorces her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So if you're going to divorce your wife, make sure you give her the right paperwork. But I say to you, Everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is not the occasion for us to develop the idea of marriage and divorce and so on. I just want you to notice right now, they're just concerned not about avoiding divorce. They're just concerned about this legality whereby when there is divorcement initiated by the man, he files the right documentation, the right paperwork. And the Lord is saying, no, that's not the standard of righteousness, which will get you entrance into the coming kingdom uh, of heaven. Anyone who divorces his wife except for this cause is guilty of commission of the of the sin of adultery sufficient to keep him out of heaven. I mean, if your wife burnt your bagel in those days, as long as you gave her the right paperwork, you had a right to send her away. Watch breakfast tomorrow. I'm warning you right now. (laughs) He is saying, oh. You think that is what God is concerned about, the correct legal procedures? No. He's concerned about the devaluation of the holiness of matrimony. That attitude, that devaluation of it all is what? Falls short of the glory of God. And then he says in verse 33, again, you have heard from the ancients Uh, uh, You were told by the agents, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. What's he saying there? You know what he's saying? The mere fact that someone has to raise their right hand and swear on a stack of Bibles, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, blah, 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 blah. The mere fact that someone has to do that implies we have a bent towards lying. So you have to publicly 
uh, attached to what you're about to say some procedure witnessed by folks and put on the record indicating you're going to tell the truth and not going to lie. I mean, that wouldn't even be an issue if we were sufficiently righteous in the eyes of God. Your yes would be yes, your no would be no. You don't have to raise your right hand. You don't have to do this, that, and the other thing. Now, the Pharisees of the day were very adept at making oaths just on the spur of the moment and getting out of them. They would make an oath invoking the name of God. And then later they would say, oh, I'm not going to keep my promise because when I invoke the name of God, he, he wasn't in it really. I made a mistake. You know, I invoked the name of God, but he wasn't behind this particular vow, and that, let, let, that lets me out of it. So once again, they're simply saying over here, you know what, don't make false vows. If you say something, don't lie about it. But the Lord Jesus is saying, the mere fact that you have to take an oath to the veracity of what you're going to say indicates the possibility that what you're about to say is not true. So can you see the standard of righteousness uh, the Lord is advancing as the prerequisite for gaining entrance into heaven? Folks, every single person is going to be disqualified. Look, it goes on, it gets worse. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard of that. We find that in various places in the Old Testament. Uh, but I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Uh, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. What's going on there? Well, the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, has to do with proportionality. The punishment must fit the crime. It cannot exceed the crime. It's called the law of retaliation. You cannot retaliate in excess. Lex talionis. It's a legal term even today. It's Latin. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a, a tooth. But that's, that's, that's what the law calls for. The Pharisees said, if you meet the standard of jurisprudence, you have met the standard of God, which is the prerequisite for you gaining entrance into heaven. This is the standard of righteousness to which you need to attain. But the Lord Jesus is saying, wait just a second. Even though the law of retaliation is surely just and right, the law of proportionality makes good sense. The standard of righteousness the Lord is looking for is for you not to claim your right to retaliate. Even if someone smacks you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. What God is looking for is a measure of submissiveness and yieldedness and humility, which says, I only have responsibilities, I don't have rights. I'm dead to myself, though I have a right to retaliate proportionately, even according to the law of Moses, I choose to forego my right. <gasps> I want to know how many here do that kind of thing. Wow. This is a standard of righteousness, don't you see? That nobody in the crowd on the Sermon of the Mount was able to meet. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense, doesn't it? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The religious leaders of the day said you should love those close to you, your neighbor, your family, but hate like crazy. Those who oppose you. But the Lord Jesus is reversing the whole thing. And he's saying, you want to know what the prerequisite is for gaining entrance into the kingdom of God? You have to love your enemies. 
Do you think that comes naturally? That does not come naturally. And then this haunting final declaration in verse 48, which really, really laid everyone on that hill low. And by the way, this is how it probably happened. Um, In keeping with rabbinic teaching style, the Lord was probably lower down on the Mount of Beatitudes, but not standing. He was seated, and then the crowd was up higher, standing or sitting. And the shape of it was a natural amphitheater. And so there was like a natural capacity for one's voice to be amplified. If you go there, you can see even a puny little guy like me could be heard from down low. You see, the sound is trapped. So he would be seated and they're up and I can just feel their heads just sinking and their body posture betraying a discouragement and a hopelessness. And then he adds to it by saying this uh, as a closing statement in verse 48. Therefore, you, you want to know what the standard for gaining entrance into heaven is? You are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You know what the standard for gaining entrance into God's heaven is? God himself is the standard. As he is perfect, you are to be perfect. Well there, be warm and be filled. Have a good day. (laughs) Tune in tomorrow. No, they're going crazy right now. Now there are some people who say God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Yes, he does. (laughs) It says right there. You are to be perfect. It doesn't say do your best. God will grade on a curve. He didn't give us 10 suggestions, did he? Gave us 10 commandments. You are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You can't gain entrance into the father's heaven until you're perfect like the father. Well, see, that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, is to obliterate any human attempt to attain to the righteous standard of God, the audacity Even to ask, oh God, what must I do to be saved? What works must I manifest to gain entrance into heaven? What church must I join? How much money must I give? How many hours should I pray? As if, I mean the audacity of it all, as if. We can live up to the perfection and the perfect standards of God by doing anything, by any body of teaching, by any membership, by following any leader. I have to tell you, the Lord created a sense of dire hopelessness and loss of confidence in self-effort as a means of gaining entrance into heaven in order to let people know he fulfilled the standards of the law for them, for us. Folks, here is the life lesson I want to derive when I think of the Mount of Beatitudes and I want to offer it to you. It's this, Jesus and Jesus only can make us kosher. I have a cousin and he is a rabbi and um, he's not fond of me. What a surprise. But... um, he, one of his jobs is to go into a, a, it's a cookie factory 
to determine whether the cookies are prepared according to our dietary laws. Certain utensils and certain pans and certain procedures and all the rest. And, and if it meets the standards of kashrif, if it's kosher, if it's acceptable, according to rabbinical standards, then he'll stamp on the box of cookies a U or a K. And the, that just means this is clean. You won't be ceremonially defiled. This is palatable. It is digestible. You can take it in. Jesus made me kosher. It is not the law of Moses that made me kosher or you. The law of Moses is perfect. It's wonderful. It's from God. God gave it to Moses to give to us but not as the means by which we gain entrance into heaven, because though the law is good, acceptable, and perfect, I ain't, and neither are you, nor was anyone on the Mount of Beatitudes when the Lord gave his sermon. He said, if you want to accede to a standard of righteousness in your own efforts, it's the Beatitudes. It's all of these things. I know what your religious leaders told you, but I say to you, even attitudes of the heart which are discrepant from the holy character of God, are sufficient to keep you out of his heaven. But I can cleanse you. And Jesus did. Perhaps some of you are um, imagining or seeing the parallel between Moses and the Lord Jesus. Moses also went up to a mountain. They both went up to mountains and did something in connection with the law. Moses went up to Mount Sinai to bring the law down to us, did he not? Well, the Lord Jesus went up to the Mount of Beatitudes to tell us we can't do the law of Moses in our own strength. So Moses is the law giver, but Rabbi Jesus is the law fulfiller. Yeah, Jesus made me kosher. That's the life lesson. You too, if you've accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Jesus, and Jesus only can make you kosher. And when he does, when you say, oh God, I have sinned, I have fallen short, I, if I haven't committed these acts of discrepant, overt behavior, if I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone lately, I haven't committed adultery lately, if I haven't done these things, Surely, oh God, you're able to see layers beneath. You know what I think, you know what I feel, you know the attitudes of my heart. Oh God, I realize even those fall short of your standards of perfect holiness. And oh God, thank you for sending your perfect son, your only begotten perfect son, your sinless son, who though he was tempted, did not sin as my substitute. Oh, Moses is somebody. <laughs> but the Lord Jesus is far better. Moses gave the law. Oh, the law's killing me. Jesus, Jesus said, I'll fulfill the law for you. And if you take Jesus as your Savior, then what happens is you become kosher. We have another word. It's called treif. Treif means defiled, not kosher. You don't eat treif. You eat what's kosher, you lay off treif. Well, I want to tell you something. When you take the Lord Jesus as your Savior, um, his Father regards us as being kosher, no longer trafe. <laughs> and he takes us. He finds us to be palatable, you see, not repulsive. 
And he takes us, you see, and he cleanses us from the inside. And he works on all those attitudes, you see, uh, slowly, daily. It's called sanctification so that we can be more and more like him until the time when we don't even have those attitudes because he, he has glorified us and we really, really reflect him, you see. Has Jesus made you kosher? You see what's at stake? If you do not come to Almighty God on the merits of his son, then you have to try to come on your own. (laughs) And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know how many times you've heard, I'm not the worst person in the world. I try not to hurt anyone. I try to do, yeah, yeah. So what? You still fall short of the glory of God. In comparison to your neighbor, maybe you're a good egg. Maybe you're not so rotten. Maybe you're less trafe than the guy across the street. But you still stink to the high heavens. It's just the way it is. Look at the attitudes of your heart. But if you take the Lord Jesus, he imputes his righteousness to us. So that when the Father sees us, he sees us just as if we had not violated his law. Jesus and Jesus alone can make us kosher. When you think of the Mount of Beatitudes, blessings, those Beatitudes are not the means of salvation. Those Beatitudes are the evidence of salvation. Don't you get it? There's not a person on that mountain who could live in compliance with those Beatitudes. The Lord Jesus was showing them, look, can you do this? No one would dare say, sure, I pulled them off. No one would say six out of eight. You have to be perfect. As your Father in heaven is perfect. That is the evidence. The Beatitudes are the evidence of the saved one. They're not the means of salvation. You know what the means of salvation is? Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone can make us kosher. Listen, if this is confusing to you, objectionable to you, or interesting to you, would you stick around and let's talk? This is really important. Let's talk about being kosher because of the merits of the sinless one on your behalf, in whose name we ought to pray right now. Lord Jesus, we do pray in your name. The Sermon on the Mount took place about 2,000 years ago. It was magnificent, Lord. Thank you for its relevance to us today. Not all the religion in the world can make us clean, kosher, undefiled, non-trafe. But your one act of sacrificial dying on the cross in satisfaction of the holy and just standards of your Father, that has made us clean. What can wash us white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus made me kosher. And for this we thank you. In your name, amen.